Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hey, you're entering into a series on 1 Corinthians, which you may or may not know. Uh, Tonight we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is all about, like, marriage. Should have been last week. That was Valentine's Day. But the good Lord saw fit to give us death and ash and dust on Valentine's Day, which is definitely better than marriage on Valentine's Day. So we get marriage and whatnot uh, this week. Do people care about getting married anymore? I gave this sermon like seven years ago, back before Noah was even married, and you're so old. Uh, But do people care about getting married anymore? I don't know. I don't know. I care. I like being married. Um, All right. Well, this is free relationship advice. Or do this unless you can't, in which case do this other thing. Or marriage is terminal, not impossible, Derek. It's not impossible. Or... I am bound, you are free. There's this thing that we kind of do with the Bible where maybe without even really being conscious of it, we sort of imagine that it's just a book that's here to give us a bunch of ideas about God. It's like, you know, like, like because 1 Corinthians is in the Bible, it is easy to assume that these Bible verses are just Paul kind of carrying on about a bunch of ideas. He's like sitting down with his pencil between his lips and he's scratching his head, thinking like, how can I create a manifesto on, you know, like sexual behavior or whatever or on God? But here's the thing. Paul wasn't writing a dissertation about anything. He was writing a letter to a community of people, maybe like yourselves. We call the letter 1 Corinthians. Paul didn't call it anything. And remember, as we are going through as in the next however many chapters, we've already been dealing with it. We're just going to be dealing about particular kinds of things. Remember that Corinthian is a word like St. Louisan. It refers to people, real people, who lived in a real place, who ate real fish that they caught out of the sea on sunny days, who got annoyed when real rocks got stuck between their toes and their sandals, who really argued with their in-laws. And in this community of real Corinthians, real people from Corinth, there was apparently some questionable behavior going on, as we have now heard. Let's review briefly what we learned from Komar and Stephanie over the last few services about this behavior. Uh, You might say incest. You might say Hal's just nodding like very, like enthusiastically, incest. Prostitution. Don't nod at that one. Don't nod at the other one either. (laughs) Don't nod at either of them. Which is fine. Again, like you can say that's what we've learned about so long as you remember that Paul is not writing like a treatise about incest and prostitution as like concepts. These are things that are happening in this community of people. So let's recap by way of this thought experiment, okay? So imagine that Paul creates a group of converts out of some families from St. Louis. Before he moves on, you guys, anybody from St. Louis? Anybody been to St. Louis? See, look how familiar you are. Now imagine St. Louis. Are you imagining it? Paul has a few families. He converts them in St. Louis before he moves on to Kansas City. Anybody from Kansas City? Been to Kansas City? Okay. And Paul's going to go see what can be done there. And in the months since he left St. Louis, a large-ish 
house church type thing has sprung up among the, or from these families, say maybe like 36 people or 41 people, something like that. Imagine something like that, kids included. They meet together at Bill's house. You guys know Bill. Bill lives in Webster Groves. They meet there twice a week. They take turns bringing a dish for supper. Everyone brings a side. Bill always makes the tea and coffee though. They sit in a big circle in Bill's basement and they sing worship songs while Howell and John are playing the guitar. And then they do a Bible study on Exodus, maybe. And so this group's going on. And then word gets out that the Rossi family, you know the Rossis, right? There's, this, there's some trouble. This guy, Rick, Rick Rossi, you know him. He's been getting around with his new stepmom. And the thing is, he's, and again, 36 to 41 people. And he's not really troubled about it. In fact, he's been auditing a philosophy class at SLU. He's pretty self-assured. So one Wednesday night in Bill's basement, this all is like now undeniable. Everybody knows what's going on. Word gets around fast. You know, like a secret among three is easily kept unless as long as two of them are dead. If it's like a church secret, even then it's not safe. So Rick Rossi stands up and he says, I keep saying, what's the big deal? I mean, God is a spirit, right? And my professor, he told me we're like that too. We're spirit. We only have a body, but the spirit is what matters. So who cares what you do with your body after hours? And he pulls one of those like switchblade style combs out of his pocket. He slicks back his hair and then he goes on. And besides, we're Christians, aren't we? Freedom in Christ, just like Paul told us before he went on to KC. Anyway, that's what Tony Galletti, I don't know why everybody in this story is Italian, but they are. And he's like, that's what Tony Galletti told me when I caught him out with a girl from the escort service. You know what I think? Rick says, I think everybody needs to relax. And there's like cheery applause from one side of the room and there's angry murmurs from the other and Tony's wife is hiding her face in her hands. Rick sits down, you're pretty sure you catch him like wink at a group of girls over by the sectional. How long is this house church going to stay together in these conditions? And how will they ever get on with changing anything in the town of Webster Groves while they're embroiled in these scandals? This is what Paul is concerned with, okay? Not just like a textbook on morality and theology. But with Paul in KC, he's not around, to address the group, the St. Louisans, they're naturally going to have a lot of questions, and so they write Paul a letter. A month later, Bill receives an envelope in the mail where the return address should be. It just says Paul in all capital letters. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So in most English Bibles, this is written as a statement, but for at least the last thousand years, translators have also seen the possibility. You switch two words, it could be a question instead. Like, dear Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is what the people write in their letter. Could also be, dear Paul, is it good for a woman or for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Statement or question, the St. Louisans, the Corinthians, sorry, we're not talking about the Corinthians, this concern makes sense because with all of the conflict and all of the distress that the sexual misbehavior is bringing into our church, wouldn't it be best just to avoid sex altogether? Right? Is this really good? Maybe not. And then Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband, 
Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you. Paul's answer, no, no, no. Like, let's not get carried away. It's not like that. There are good reasons. There are reasons for sexual intimacy between husbands and wives. Like for some, affairs are just way too appealing. For, single, for some single folks, that's uh, just too much to resist. So, and it's, I mean, self-control. It's in short supply for many, as it always has been. So even if we're only trying to prevent destructive things, it is a good thing for a man and a woman to be together. In other words, we're not going to make a universal rule of abstinence just because Rick Rossi was doing what he was doing, or Tony Galletti. Exhibit A, on how you can't make this universal rule. Look at this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all was myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single, but if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better than to marry than to burn with passion. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, she consents to live with them, he shouldn't divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, okay, I guess let it happen, let it go. In such cases, remember, you're not slaves, God's called you to peace. All this, maybe this, and then this, maybe this. And then I just kind of laugh, and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And we're like, ugh. <laughs> the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, it has to be, okay, let him do as he wishes, marry. If you can't hang, just go ahead and do the thing. When you read the rest of chapter 7, which I'm not going to read at all, you can almost hear, though, like he's addressing all these concerns, you can hear between the lines all of these questions that must have come gushing out of his community. Because remember, he's not trying to address this in a vacuum. These are people living lives. So you can almost hear, it's like, dear, dear Paul, my wife died last year. Now I'm falling for another woman in the church. Should I get married again? Dear Paul, my husband and I, we've been married 20 years. I just became a Christian last year. He playfully tells me my beliefs are rubbish each night before he kisses me goodnight. Now everyone's telling me that I should divorce him before I stop, before I stop believing. Are they right? Dear Paul, my wife says she's had enough of this boring life in this God-forsaken town. She's leaving, whether I come with her or not. What should I do? We can hear these questions, and you know they're not trivial uh, because they're about real relationships that really existed in this real Mediterranean world. And not just relationships, marriages, family. Paul knows the questions aren't trivial. Marriage isn't trivial. And so just try to imagine his tone here. Like, have you ever read other parts of Paul and you've been like, wow, that's like, that's like a little abrasive. That's a little aggressive. Sometimes when he's addressing various things that apparently people have written to him. He can be like pretty fiery. He can be pretty snarky. But here he's like, I hear it as like, he's kind of earnestly addressing each of these concerns because these things aren't trivial. So it's like, dear widower, go ahead and marry if you feel strongly for her. Life might be less burdensome if you stay, sing stay single, but I get it. You're not doing anything wrong if you do marry. Dear wife of that sweet, jokey unbeliever, stay with him if he's happy to stay with you. Something really good and holy might come out of it. Dear husband of that restless wife who's ready to go, let her go. Peace is the most important thing. All of this advice for all of these people. To husbands, this. To wives, that. To the unmarried, something else. Virgins, here. Widows, this other thing. Slaves, try this. 
until we finally get to this that's near the center of the chapter when he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. What kind of a rule is that? It seems like the chapter starts off with the Corinthians like wanting this universal rule, right? It's good just to avoid this altogether, right? Is that what we should do? But Paul refuses that and he ends up at this. My rule is that each person should just live the life that God has called them to live, which as I just kind of pointed to, it's not really much of a rule because the very essence of this is you can't just apply it across the board. All of these questions spring up. What is the life to which God has called you? And how do you most faithfully live that out in the time and place in which you find yourself? And these are things that the community of people, they have to navigate by wisdom and the Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Like how Paul just can't seem to stop blurting out all of these caveats and concessions. Like look at this list here. He's like, now as a concession, not a command. Or, I think it's good for them to remain single, but if they can't, they should marry. To the rest, it's the I, not the Lord thing. We'll get to that in a second. He's like, were you a bondservant when you were called? Like, were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Well, I guess unless you have a chance to get free, in which case, maybe you should do that. Now, concerning the betrothed, I don't have a command from the Lord, but here's something. Here's, here's some judge. I think I might know what I'm talking about, so maybe you try this. And are you free from a wife? Don't seek one. But... If you do marry, okay, you haven't, you haven't sinned. This is just me, God's sign on this one. Like, it's, it's a weird paradox, right? When Paul's like, I tell you this, not the Lord, because it's like in the Bible. You know the like, this statement is false paradox? If the statement is false, then it's true, in which case it's not false, but it is false or true, where it's like, oh, well, this is just me, but it's in the Bible, so if it's Paul, but it's in the Bible, then it's from God, but it's also saying that it's just from Paul. What? Which then, what becomes really interesting in light, all, in light of all of these, like, conditions and self-deprecating remarks is the one moment in the chapter where he actually states the opposite. Here in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. I give you a command now, where just before he was like, I'm not giving you this as a command. And now he's saying, this is a command from the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And even here, there's a condition. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Here's the command from the Lord if you're married, uh, don't separate, don't divorce. All of the other bits that he's written in this chapter about marriage, the ones where he keeps saying, this is just from me, this is not from the Lord, this is what I think. Notice, all of these things are talking about the control that you, pretend you're married, that you have over the actions of your spouse, which is none. Do you as a spouse have rights in your marriage? Yes, you do. Do you have authority? Yes, actually both husbands and wives. This is like a pretty forward thinking kind of teaching by the way. When he's saying that women have authority over their husband's bodies, that would be like, there would definitely be some men in the crowd who'd be like, say what? Yes, you have authority, you have rights. Nevertheless, 
The idea is they, your spouse, they're free. Don't control them. Do they want to go? Let them go. Do they want to stay? Let them stay. But then this verse here, this one that's clearly the Lord's command, not I, but the Lord. Notice it's talking about the control that you have over your own actions in the marriage. Are you free in your marriage? Well, yeah. Like these same, the principles from before, they apply to you the same. But when it's the Lord's word to you, he says, you're bound. Don't leave. If they want to leave, let them leave. You, you stay. So let me say this again. As far as it concerns your spouse, they are completely free. You have authority over their body. You have rights from them. Yes, but you don't exercise that to control them. You don't demand those rights from them. It's up to them if they're going to give it to you or not. Are you tracking? As far as concerns you, though, you are completely bound. And it's, again, it's not Paul's best guess here. Like, this is what I think. This is the command from God. Give your spouse everything that's theirs from you as a gift. The whole thing is a gift. Your job is to say, I'm with you no matter what. You do what you want. I make my promise to you, and you are under no compulsion from me to either make that same promise or stick to it. I'm, I'm staying with you. You'll do what you're going to do. This section um, in your Bible is, uh, there's like a section heading in a lot of them that says, Principles for Marriage. I've been married for 18 years now, 18 and a half. And this is just me talking, okay? But as one who I think, like I've, I've tried to pay careful attention to my life and my marriage, I would say that what I'm about to say is maybe like the best fundamental principle for marriage or here's your free advice that I can give you. And I think if you get this right, both you and your spouse, if you get this right, things will work out for the good over time. But get it wrong and it doesn't really matter like how many cool Christian books on marriage you've read. It doesn't matter like how well you know your spouse's love language. It doesn't matter how like expert your communication is. If you, if you don't get this right, things are going to fall apart. And the rule is this. I am bound. You are free. That's it. That's the rule. I am bound. You are free. I will give of myself and I will keep giving of myself, even if it brings me to my death, which it very well may. And I will do that whether you give of yourself to me in the same way or even at all. I will love you and I will go on loving you and I will stop expecting and I will stop demanding and I will stop trading and I will stop scheming for your love. The foundation of Christian marriage isn't I will do for you as you do for me. And it's not clear communication or love language or any of that. It's not even praying together. It is I am bound. You are free. Am I saying you should make yourself a doormat? Am I saying that you can't remind yourself uh, or sorry, your spouse of the promises that they made to you on your wedding day? Hey, you said that you were going to do this. Are you going to do this? or even the promise they made like last Friday? Am I saying that you can't remind them of how they said that they would pray more with the kids or with you 
Either, or, 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 or that you can't ask them again to fix the leaky faucet because they said they were going to do that this weekend? Am I saying that you can't stick up for yourself and that you can't ask for the dignity and respect that you deserve in conflict? No, I'm not saying any of that. What I am suggesting is that the road of marriage doesn't terminate when your spouse fails to do those things for you in return. You shouldn't just leave when they start disappointing you and hurting you. And even maybe if they go on doing those things, hear me again, I'm not advocating that you stay in an abusive relationship. Of course, I'm not advocating that. But marriages don't exist as just like a binary, either like they're perfectly happy and healthy or they're like hellish and abusive. There is a whole spectrum between being completely content together and hellish abuse. There is a spectrum that is full of all kinds and degrees of disappointment and hurt and contempt and heartbreak where we need to be encouraged and strengthened to live by this rule through that, I am bound, you are free. Does this make anybody uncomfortable? Okay, well, you're not married yet, so I don't hold it against you. You should be terrified. It's terrifying. It feels like you're walking into a minefield. It feels, it feels like that. And the voice of the accuser is immediately in your ear, and he says, you are asking to be taken advantage of. Yeah. It, may, maybe the really scary part is maybe that voice is right. Like maybe you will be taken advantage of, which I know that for like us as like, self-respecting, dignified, American independent people, there is hardly anything worse that we can imagine than being taken advantage of. But marriages on their worst days, they become struggles for power and they become schemes for control and they become negotiations for autonomy. It's not just an empty threat that you really could get hosed by saying, I am bound, you are free. You really could. It's almost enough to make you ask like, well, since marriage has like caused such devastation, would it be better just not to get married at all? But, but what if Paul is like letting us in on this secret about I am bound and you are free? Because what if there was a marriage, imagine this, where not just one, but both of the people were living by this principle? What if one wasn't the doormat and the other one was taking advantage of them? But what if they were both living by, I am bound, you are free? What if both people were choosing to ignore that fear that's like, well, if I let them go this time, what's to say they're not going to go every time? And doesn't it seem like you're always taking care of things and like cleaning up while they're just putting their feet up? Or this one that's like, if you apologize first, you will always end up giving them what they want. Think about the power that you're handing over to them. But like, what if both husband and wife saw themselves as totally bound and saw the other one as totally free? The marriage in which both say, I am bound, you are free, it is the epitome of Christ-centered. Think about this. Did Jesus contractually oblige his disciples to stay by him? No. And some, actually all, they abandoned him. They scattered. And yet he stayed bound to them until the very end for their sake. He was bound. We were free. Can we even conceive of a marriage where both are living out this? Can we picture Eden? It's like this picture of total trust. But it only works in mutual submission. 
So let me tell you, we have been fed some crap about relationships. There's this foolish dynamic that you might hear somebody say, well, it's got to be 50-50. That's bullcrap. From the outset, it creates this sense of entitlement because you're like, where's my half? Give me my half and I'll give you yours. But Christian marriage doesn't work like that. It's not 50-50. It's more like 100 question mark. I will give all that I have, and who knows? I'm just going to give all that I have. The logic here, (laughs) it's not really logical. It's pretty incredible. And surely it's ideal, but also, like, is there a better ideal to fall short of? Because the alternative is what? What's the alternative, folks? Uh, You can rule your own universe, and you can be in charge in the marriage, and you can make sure things go your way. You might as well just be alone. I mean, loneliness for the sake of ruling your own universe, that's not peace, that's hell. And a marriage in which, in which you're making sure, like, no, I gotta, I gotta keep my power here, I gotta keep the leverage, I gotta make sure that I'm getting my half, that's just like a prison. Hmm. Okay, to wrap this up, I will just ask, I, I will tell you what I always ask people to consider when I officiate at a wedding. Leanne likes to tell me that my wedding sermons are real bummers. But people keep asking me to do them, so. Here's what I ask people to consider. How does anyone make it? How does anyone make it? Not just like coexisting for a long time, but living well and living happily together for a long time. How do you stay bound while letting them be free? And the short answer is, die. No, actually, die. It doesn't sound pleasant, but here's the thing. Death, it's inevitable. It comes in marriage whether you want it to or not. And I'm not just talking about physical death here, okay? Like, yes, someday one of you is going to die, but that's not what I'm talking about. To the biblical mind, death is a quality of life. It is perfectly possible to the biblical writers for someone to be walking around breathing and yet dead in every way that matters. And marriages can be this way too. So in marriage, we either enter into death daily or else it consumes us eventually. So like you can insist on your own world you can insist on your own way. You can strive for your own, your own freedom. I am free. You are whatever. You can insist on not dying. Like, you can say the hurtful thing. You can give the critique. Man, we're good at critiquing our spouses. You can double down. I mean, because, you know, the critiques, sometimes they're accurate, right? Double down on your hurt. You can bring up the last time. You can long for a fantasy. You can keep the secret. In all of these ways, you can try to be free and try to avoid your own pain, but death will find you, and in the end, it's all you'll be left with. Or, alternative, my recommendation, you can choose to die. You can walk into your death in your marriage as Christ walked into his. Like, you can, you can just give up yourself. You can give up your weekend. You can give up offering every opinion that you have about them. You can give thanks for every routine and boring thing that you would otherwise take for granted. You can give up saying, I'm sorry, second. You can let it all 
die, and it is terrifying, and it is high risk. And then again, so was a crucifixion. But <laughs> we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. A way made for us, life over death. How? Through it. We know, you guys know that marriage ends in death, right? That's the whole point of the vow, like until death do us part. But it also begins there. And it lives there in dying. So, like we can let it all die. And we can be bound and we can watch it be resurrected into something better than we can dictate for ourselves. Because that same power that was at work in Jesus to remake the world that we unmade is also at work in marriages where husbands and wives are laying themselves down for one another. We have peace with God. We have peace with God with us because he decided to stay with us, to live and die by this rule. I am bound, you are free. Maybe that same peace can come to reside in a home where both husband and wife do the same. It's not impossible. It's not impossible, Derek. We can conceive of it. It's right here. These are Leanne's grandparents. That picture is from their earliest days of marriage. They were married in 1947. And Mima passed away Christmas Eve just a couple months ago. They were married for 76 years. And let me tell you, friends, they were happy. And they were at peace with one another. I mean, you can see it. That picture is just the, the one on the right. It's from just a few years ago. They were happy together. I watched Peepaw holding his wife's hand as she passed. He's 99, she's 96. They've been together for 76 years. He has completed his vow. He is ushering her into her death. And they can do that because they lived in this kind of dying all the time for the good of one another, not demanding everything they had a right to. They were bound to one another. They let the other one be free. And it was a deeply, holy, beautiful thing. It's real. So I want to finish this way, just with a proposal for a way to live that's in the form of a vow that some spouses said to one another 18 years ago, who are getting there, we are, we still have a long way to go. This will be our benediction. Before the last song. <clears throat> I will love you as sure as God has loved me. I will discover what I can, and though you remain a mystery, what I disclose of you I will keep in the warmest chamber of my heart, the very chamber where God has stowed himself in me. And I will do this to my death, and to death it may bring me. I will love you as God does, because of Christ, mighted by the Holy Spirit. I will stop expecting your love, demanding your love, trading for your love, gaming for your love. I will simply love in all that I give and in all that I give up. I am giving myself to you and tomorrow I will do it again. And I will never give up in any circumstance but in all things and in every day trust that his grace is sufficient. 
His example has brought me to this altar of dying, and by his grace, I will daily find myself here dying and dying again. God risked himself on me. I will risk myself on you, and together we will learn to love, and perhaps then and only then understand the gravity that drew him unto us. Let's pray. Maybe some of us will get married in here someday, Lord. And it will matter a great deal, and it will not be trivial. And it will be difficult. And there will be a million voices telling us about what our rights are, and what we are owed, and what would make us happy. And we will be tempted to chase that down at all costs. We will be tempted to shape our spouse into our own image. Or else we will be tempted to just give up and put as much distance between them and us as we can. Lord, please help us with this charge that Paul gave from you to not leave, to not separate. And if we do hang around and try to be reconciled, that is the thing that binds us. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the manner of Christ's death, laying ourselves down for one another. Lord, teach us to really love, and it might take a really long time, it might take 76 years even, but you can teach us and we will learn. Hopefully our marriages will be holy.